Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a bonus episode on Mike White's new HBO series, The White Lotus, with another on the way about the Apple TV Plus series, Ted Lasso. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. It's hard to know how to talk about theatrical movies right now, with a new variant of COVID surging, the government debating new mask mandates or even new shutdowns, and theaters having trouble getting people in the door. But for a brief moment, we were all excited to get back to theaters to finally see what feels like one of the few highly anticipated movies of 2020 that didn't eventually capitulate and head straight to a VOD release. We're headed back in time to a mythical era of kings and sorcerers, of generational strife and feudal lords. We're headed back to the age of knights and queens, and especially kings, which leads us to wonder a few things, huh, Scott? Uh, what? That's your cue. My cue for what? To break into song. You're doing the solo on I Wonder What the King is Doing Tonight, the opening song of Camelot? Oh, Tasha, haven't we already done the opening skit where you planned an elaborate musical and none of us followed up and we haven't rehearsed and, you know, none of us are planning to sing? Oh, this really takes me back. Yeah, that's exactly the point. The whole theme of this pairing is about nostalgia and legend and reinventing the past to inspire us in the future. So I thought I'd revive an old favorite bit for this opening exchange. Okay, does this mean you didn't rehearse the simple joys of maidenhood? I didn't rehearse what? From Camelot. The Learner and Lowe musical. You sing that, then Keith sings How to Handle a Woman, and we all have a good laugh over how simple women are and how uncomplicated and easy love is. I'm just going to say, not it. Okay, let's just cut to the chase here, Tasha. None of us have memorized Camelot. None of us rehearsed the Knights of the Round Table dance from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't even remember any of the song titles from Disney's Sword in the Stone. You keep forgetting this, but this just isn't a musical theater podcast, and none of us are big singers. I mean, I'm pretty sure I could get out at least one verse or so of Mad Madam Mim. That's a fun one. You aren't helping. <laughs> wow, I feel so betrayed here. Like I just found my husband and my best friend decorously naked together atop a suspiciously bed-like hillock covered in moss. Um, maybe we could talk about the Legends of the Athuriad in a non-musical way? I guess if we have to. Go ahead and kick us off. Back in the 1980s, John Borman was known as the director of hit movies like Point Blank, Deliverance, and Zardoz. Okay, maybe not Zardoz exactly, but you know what I'm talking about. But while that film made more of a cult classic than a classic for the ages, it certainly proved he wasn't afraid of big fantasy set pieces and big, ambitious swings. Borman's 1981 epic fantasy film Excalibur represented a particularly personal vision, coming from a fascination with Arthurian myth that Borman says drew him into sneaking grail imagery into his earlier films. David Lowry's fantasy fable, The Green Knight, similarly seems to come from a personal place, given how it plays with favorite Lowry themes like time and death and memory. Both films deal with common Arthurian themes like chivalry and honor and the giving way of one era to another, but at the same time, they're very different visions, one about the rise and fall of a kingdom and one possibly and potentially about the rise and fall of a man 
depending on how you interpret it. So this week, we'll talk about two different quests, one for personal glory and one to save an entire kingdom, both of them the story of young men pursuing mythic destinies in worlds full of magic, but also both coming-of-age stories that give way to a wider world. We'll dive into both after this. Pictures presents John Borman's Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and great. And I will marry. Don't you know me, Merlin? Because I'm a creature like you. Their magic is Merlin. Are you just a dream to sell? A nightmare to others. Their king. Is Arthur. You are my husband. I must be king first. Their power is Excalibur. I swear eternal faith to our king. Sir Lancelot, you will be my champion. The historical King Arthur presided over an era of upheaval and crucial national change. The warring kingdoms and principalities of Britain were divided and chaotic, and Arthur worked to unite them under a single consistent rule of law, defined by the chivalric ideas that the strong should serve and protect the weak and defenseless. Meanwhile, the traditional pagan worship of the Celtic people was giving way to the new religion of Christianity, which preached love, forgiveness, and brotherhood instead of propitiation and superstition. There are clear parallels between these two movements, the worship of many bloodthirsty ancient gods giving way to one modern forgiving one, and the rule of many warlike territories coming together under one enlightened kind ruler. You might say it's a surprisingly neat and orderly parallel, which makes a certain amount of sense because it's all pretty much fiction. Historians are divided on whether a historical King Arthur actually lived, and if he did, when he ruled and what his rule looked like. Much like the traditional legend of the samurai and their Bushido code were largely a nostalgic fiction, invented by Japanese writers looking back and inventing a more noble and prosperous age than the present they were dealing with, King Arthur was created as a legend to help define a tumultuous present. Director John Borman was well aware of the dynamic when he made his 1981 fantasy epic Excalibur, which adapts Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur as something like a gritty historical epic, apart from the dueling wizards and the magic spells. If there ever was an Arthur, Borman told American Cinema Papers on the set of the film back in the 1980s, he cited in about the 6th century. But the date is the least important thing, really. I think of the story, the history, as a myth. The film has to do with mythical truth, not historical truth. It has to do with man taking over the world on his own terms for the first time. So the first trap to avoid is to start worrying about when or whether Arthur existed. The stories that inspired us were actually 15th century works by Thomas Mallory and the rest, looking back nostalgically on the 12th, unquote. Excalibur was part of the fantasy boom of the early 1980s, the same post-Star Wars wave of colorful epics that gave us Xanadu, Clash of the Titans, Dragon Slayer, Time Bandits, The Beastmaster, Conan the Barbarian, The Dark Crystal, and Krull, all in the span of just a couple of years. But in spite of Excalibur's death magic and misspells and its quest for a magic cup, it's easily the most grounded of these movies, the one that at least reaches for some sort of historical weight. In that same interview, Borman said that what he was reaching for was a sense of humans acting out a legend without any idea that their deeds and lives would eventually become legendary. He described it as a kind of J.R.R. Tolkien-style version of Middle-earth, where everything we think of as the signifiers of past romantic age is still new and contemporary. Quote, I wanted to have a primal clarity, a sense that things are happening for the first time. Landscape and nature and human emotions are all fresh, unquote. 
That certainly comes across in the themes of the film and in the sometimes pop-eyed performances where a would-be king bellows out his lust and his sorcerer assistant lurks and sneers and purrs in the background. There's none of the subtlety or internality we would see in a modern film. When a young Arthur, played by Nigel Terry, sets his eyes on Guinevere and decides he wants to marry her, he completely ignores everything his advisor Merlin is trying to carefully imply to him about looking ahead to the future. When Guinevere hands him a symbolic hand pie and laces it with innuendo and flirting, Arthur casually stuffs it in his mouth while Merlin is still mid-metaphor. When Arthur gets frustrated with an upstart challenger, the French knight Lancelot, he bellows at his rage and tries his utmost to kill Lancelot, and then when he nearly succeeds, he's equally performative about his regret and shame. The movies are used to people who act on their impulses and forge stories by not holding back, but the characters in Excalibur are a particularly lusty and forthright breed. There's nothing moderated or hesitant or visibly choreographed about their frequent battles, which feel chaotic and desperate and messy. These are people who say what's on their minds, or just as often howl it out like wolves approaching their prey. And yet Excalibur is openly about that myth of unrefined, uncontrolled barbarians giving way to more civilized future. It's also, like any tale about the history of Camelot, about that civilized future ending, about a dream that couldn't last because people are too relentlessly driven by their desires. Borman's film, scripted by Rospo Pallenberg, adapts Mallory in covering Arthur's life from his messy conception to his passing from the world, not necessarily dead so much as waiting, on call, in a mystic liminal space, ready for Britain to need him again. His story starts when his father, Uther Pendragon, played by a bellowing Gabriel Byrne, lusts after another lord's wife and breaks a carefully brokered peace in order to try to steal her. Then he browbeats his advisor Merlin into setting him up so he can rape the woman while magically disguised as her husband. Merlin, played with weird, chop-liking sinuousness by Nicole Williamson, agrees, as long as he gets to keep the resulting baby. When Arthur is born, Merlin spirits that baby away and arranges for him to be adopted and raised by a nobleman, until the time comes for him to draw Uther's magical sword Excalibur from the stone he embedded it in upon his death. This makes Arthur the king of the Britons, but unlike in gentler versions of the myth, the Britons don't immediately bow and buy in. They go to war for their freedom and power, and it's up to Arthur and his followers to rally and dominate the rebel lords, or win them over with nobility. Borman skips past decades as Camelot rises and Britain thrives under the health and goodwill of its king. Then Guinevere and Lancelot get decorously intimate in the forest, Arthur loses his will to live, his half-sister Morgana magically seduces him and produces a creepy son to usurp him, and everything falls apart, until a mythic quest that destroys Arthur's knights one by one finally leads the humblest of them all, Percival, to bring him the Holy Grail and remind him that he and the land are linked, and that it can't prosper until he returns to rule it. It's enough plot for eight seasons of Game of Thrones, all packed into 140 minutes and absolutely stuffed with big, meaningful literary symbolism at every turn, from the image of a man literally begetting his own doom, to the montage of Arthur's poor mother Ygraine being roughly penetrated by Uther at the same moment that her husband is being penetrated by the spears of Uther's warriors. This isn't the kind of four-quadrant international market-safe fantasy they make these days. It's an old-school fantasy for adults with graphics, sex, and violence. It is, in other words, a lot. A lot of blood, a lot of big screaming emotion, a lot of over-the-top decision-making driven by uncontrolled ids, and a lot of memorable imagery meant to evoke an earlier age of wonder where everything people did was meaningful enough to become legendary. Merlin himself senses that that age is ending. He tells Morgana, when she comes to him for magic lessons and power, our time is passing and the time of man is coming. The one god is driving out the many gods. He recognizes, as so many people who've written or directed Arthurian stories have before, that King Arthur's story is meant to represent a moment of vast and shifting change. 
And just as those legends came from an era looking back nostalgically on a largely mythical past, this movie feels like a nostalgia piece itself. For so many reasons, they don't make movies like this anymore. Maybe some future historian will make a movie about Borman making Excalibur and make the act of making this loud, abashed, messy film as mythic as the era it's depicting. That seems appropriate enough to who Borman is and what he was trying to do. Merlin, what have I done? You have broken what could not be broken. Hope is broken. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. This excellent knight who fought with fairness and grace was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. So what's everybody's history with Excalibur? I first remember being Forbidden Fruit. It was like the (laughs) R-rated fantasy film that would play on on HBO at night. And I think there was a PG version that played during the day, if I remember correctly. We didn't have HBO. I just followed the stuff very closely. Um, but I eventually <laughs> got around to reading it and really liked it. It's a movie I've seen a lot over the years. It is very much, it is, as you say, in many ways, a messy film, but it's very much to my taste. I mean, it, it's this sort of like gauzy, you know, literally florid <laughs> our, our, our version of the Arthur story uh, kind of shot through with, with Jungian uh, symbolism and things like that. Uh, I, I can't resist. I like it every time I watch it. Uh, yeah, it was also uh, it wasn't even forbidden fruit because I, I didn't really think I was all that cognizant of it. I would have been what 10 when it came out uh hey that's my line (laughs) oh yeah Uh, what what was what was your situation in 1981 (laughs) Uh, pre-fetal okay so uh, um yeah so i i don't think i caught up with it until much later i don't even remember when i first encountered it but i had occasion to to watch it a year or two ago when I was, you know, preparing for, you know, the eventual passing of John Borman, which hasn't happened yet. Which hasn't happened. We he's should, still, he's, no, he's still alive and living on a uh, giant estate by himself. I think, of, he, I think he follows me on Twitter insofar as he's engaged with Twitter at all. And really, you know, the, yeah, that, that guardian <laughs> piece about how he lives now about his, his life on his uh, distant estate makes it impossible to imagine him getting on Twitter to see what's up on Scott's yeah, account. Oh, no, he hasn't posted in a long time. I'm sure it wasn't him in the first place, but yeah. <laughs> uh, well, in any case, I think my only memory of it is, just seeing it today and seeing it maybe a couple of years ago, I guess I, with everyone's uh, on what it's like, I mean, it is messy, uh, uh, though I don't necessarily see it as quite as irresistibly. So um, <laughs> it is um, because it just, it throws you right in the middle of the action without giving you any kind of context in the, in the whole. No, it's got that, the, the words the beginning. It says it's the dark ages. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but like, but like, but what it doesn't do either is because it's jamming so much into such a, I guess, 140 minutes short time frame. Um, you don't get moments where it just pauses to give you an emotion or give you mm-hmm. some kind of. It, it's a film that really does feel rushed. Uh, the best stretch, I, th- I think, you know, looking at it now, uh, the best stretch by a good measure is is the uh, Grail quest and the all the the sort of like that sort of foggy search for the Grail where the, the land is falling in desperate times, leading up to the moment when. 
I love it so much. Uh, when Carmina Burana is blaring and the flowers are, are blooming and, and the nights are, and there's flowers, you know, there's petals floating everywhere. Uh, you know, I, I can't resist it. But, you know, the ending is rushed. It, there, it, there's a lot of ponderous and, as you say, kind of confusing uh, stretches in the middle. But uh, uh, just just, the, just the, the cinematic qualities of this, uh, I, I, I'm all over it. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have to be like operating in a certain tonal register to be able to like use Ofortana uh, unironically and pull it off. <laughs> and, and I think that this is a film that uh, can do that for all the reasons we've kind of talked about. This was my first experience uh, with the film. I kind of knew about it by reputation. I knew it was a film that was maybe, let's say, divisive <laughs> in, in, in its quality. So I was like, kind of, I kind of like went into it prepared for something. Uh, uh, that was to to use a phrase that's already been uh, invoked a couple times a lot. Um, mm. So it, it, it's probably good. I, w- I was prepared for that because I think it kind of allowed me to quiet the the voice in my head that like was kind of like, why is Merlin acting so weird <laughs> and, be, <laughs> and be able to to you know kind of appreciate the like the literal spectacular nature of this film? Like it is it is a spectacle, a film spectacle, and I. I do have a, a good amount of appreciation for for it. So um, I also like enjoyed as far as like kind of the look and style of this film, how it really leans into the idea that like legend isn't bound by by history or timelines or authenticity, particularly in regards to fashion. Um, and you know maybe like bright neon crosses in the background at one point. <laughs> like like there's uh, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of preciousness about like making this seem quote unquote real you know there's like a dreamlike quality to it that really fits with with the idea of legend and all that like i say i'm I'm very appreciative now at the same time (laughs) there are those performances which do kind of maybe create a certain distance between the, the viewer and the character and especially you know talking about character with figures that are pretty well known even you know just on a superficial level like you know Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot and Merlin, you know, I kept expecting to get something more about these characters or or like some sort of like deeper symbolic or thematic something going on. But the film kind of has this feeling that it's like uh, has been said kind of like rushing through to hitting all the marks in this very, very long narrative, you know, and it's, it's sort of like the equivalent of a music biopic where King Arthur has to think about his entire life before. Before he uh, goes to Avalon, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I like was kind of wrestling with all of that as I was watching this film, um, which maybe made it a little more difficult to fall into than than I would have liked. But I could at the same time still appreciate these moments of glorious weirdness or beauty or sometimes just audacity. I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of audacity in this film. I watched this for the first time in college. Uh, My husband, then boyfriend, was part of a fencing club, and the fencing club periodically met to watch this uh, alongside Princess Bride. Princess Bride, Mm -hmm. a lot of fencing. This movie, not so much fencing, it's just uh, wildly bashing each other with swords. (laughs) Yeah, the fencing club didn't get up to a whole lot of jousting, at least not that I ever saw. But, you know, it was something that they they liked to revisit for the sword play and <laughs> encounter you for the first time in college. I felt a little like I was sitting in a dorm room watching porn. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the graphic sexual elements of it. But 
even the parts that aren't aren't sexual just kind of have that same like luridness to them that that same kind of like over the top immediacy of it just kind of feels like he planted the camera and said now bash each other until the blood bags hidden in your armor finally start breaking it's going to take a while and it's going to hurt uh (laughs) it's some very jarring combat and some very messy combat that as i say doesn't feel super choreographed you know you you can't feel the beats that's like okay so sort of up up to the left uh to the right step you step forward i step back like that kind of uh combat choreography that you see so much on stage this is just uh it just feels real raw um a lot of the time yeah like no one like jumps in the air while the camera spins around them and they come (laughs) down with the sword real fast what What's up with that? See, I feel like that's a, that's the one part where it is probably most historically accurate. Not, certainly not in the armor they're wearing, but the but in the awkwardness of, of medieval combat. I think it probably would look a lot more like that than, yeah. than something more elegant. You're saying that they didn't all have like incredibly shiny sir, sterling silver uh, armor from Claire's? I'm saying that's that's very yeah exactly. But also that's that's very uh, late medieval <laughs> armor, uh, not whatever this, this legendary age is supposed to be taking place in. But of course, because it doesn't matter. I, I think uh, Keith, you've got the most like classical <laughs> education aimed at this particular era. Like, how does this hit you? It like as you know, much as as doctors have a hard time watching movies where medicine happens, and IT people have a hard time watching movies about hackers. Like, does any <laughs> any part of this movie just kind of make you go, "Oh God, really? Why are you doing that?" Uh, yeah, well, I'm just someone who took a lot of medieval lit classes 25 years ago, so a lot of it's not particularly present for me. But but it is a very 20th century Arthur. I mean, specifically, it's 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 an Arthur that's that's uh, influenced by like things like the, the James Fraser of the Golden Bough and uh, you know Jesse Weston's from Ritual to Romance, which were very interested in tying, you know, kind of like looking for. You know, it would be kind of taken up by Joseph Campbell later by looking for connections and various uh, myths and, and religious stories, uh, and and specifically the idea of Arthur being a modern version of a fertility myth, where you have the king tied to the land, the king is sick, the land is sick, the king dies, uh, and the land is reborn. Um, you know, all this, all this stuff that that it's very you know played up in Excalibur, um, and 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 played up. And, you know, I think in, with with we'll get into the Green Knight as well but but there's a little bit of it there too but i think it's you know this is also a a ball that that, that carl jung would run with uh, as well so you get a lot of like 20th century late 19th century uh philosophy and 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 psychology and a, and, and sort of like some stabs at anthropology uh playing into this and, and i think in a way that a lot of that a lot of that you know, scholarship has been largely scoffed at and discredited in later years but it certainly found a foothold in in literature and the and the arts and some and i think it plays you know i think it's a neat if, if it doesn't necessarily work a scholarship it, it certainly is a, a neat lens through which to view uh, the the Arthur story. Yeah, looking at those Jungian themes, there's just there's so much going on in this film in terms of, you know, the themes of a man's sin driving his own destruction. Uh, you know, you you reap what you sow. Generational change tearing down what the generation before did. Uh, the <laughs> there's kind of a Eve in Eden kind of business with the the way women sow the downfall of Camelot. There's just 
thematically there are a whole lot of ideas going on here is this there's movie- uh, swords that break off in in awkward ways swords that are held by other men <laughs> hold, holding swords uh there's, I, there's a little bit of that gonna, going on as well i'm just gonna fess up when uh arthur hand like pointed his sword at lancelot to gently hold and and kiss the tip i said some very off color things that uh you know this is this is not an unrated podcast i'm not going to repeat uh but yeah the use of swords as indicators of masculinity, particularly the swords held upright to indicate, uh, you know, lustiness and fertility and uh, uh, intent, stuff like that. There's a lot. But like, what is this movie about as far as you're concerned? Like what what stands out 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 of all of this like mishmash of symbolism to you? I think Merlin kind of spells it out toward the end about um, how th- these are the stories that we'll re- remember, you know, men will need to, to remember these stories and be inspired by them later. I think that's ultimately what Borman's most interested in is, is the way, you know, you have all, all these people, like, like, like you said, that don't know they're creating legends at the time, but you know, the idea that these legends exist for a reason. And, and, and uh, I think he's interested in like, you know, to get really broad and in, in the power of stories uh, and, and to shape the national character and, and, and to um, sh- re- shape how we look at the world yeah i mean i think keith's probably right that that's like the the film's uh biggest focus i think what stood out to me is uh, another thing keith kind of kind of brought up which was uh you know the king's link to the land the kind of sort of the symbiotic relationship between them and that came out for me in this film just again in the look like so much of what i responded to in this movie was the look just because the the legend there's just so much going on with with the legend and like it's such a a lush film and you know we, we keep using words like lush and sensual and all this and a lot of that is you know because of the the sexiness and the sword kissing but it's also like a very green film you know like it's filmed in in forests and on you know on forest floors and whatnot so yeah just visually speaking i think that theme came out strongest to me but the thing is i I didn't really see it as lush in the same way as a movie like legend you know the Mm -hmm. really scott film is lush i mean there is a heaviness to the action and the fact that you're sort of thrown in to the middle and that everything is messy and that that's sword fighting is a lot of just people yeah. bashing each other around and there's kind of a there's a certain amount of chaos uh to this film yeah maybe lush isn't quite the right word maybe like elemental you know like yeah, the like yeah. the, the so you can factor in the blood and mud a little more too yeah you know? <laughs> and, and that, i think lush applies to the middle section though when the land is thriving and there's mm-hmm. kind of this golden age going on and yeah. you know you, you know you, you make love in the forest and you're surrounded by happy animals right, right yeah and i'm, I'm <laughs> or you you sleep alone and naked in the forest atop just a verdant bed of like the brightest green emerald moss imaginable <laughs> i i don't i don't imagine people would want to sleep naked outdoors much then or now for various reasons but if you did in in that era you certainly would not be nearly that clean you know <laughs> lancelot is just this uh bastion of shining light whether he's dressed up in his extremely silver armor or he's like the cleanest naked man in all christendom he's, kind of, he's always around some sort of very crisp pond water i would think right of course he is yeah he's lancelot lake right so 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 he, he he's uh he's washed he's plenty he's, cl- he's clean <laughs> we thought that was about his like his domain like the lands that he owned but no it it just signifies that wherever he goes there's a clean place to walk up <laughs> uh, there's yeah. there's symbolism for you but it also kind of connects this movie to deliverance right the borman's film which is also about 
you know, nature and elemental qualities and masculinity and, and uh, you know, what happens when the rules don't apply. I mean, I think they're kind of building a, they're building a place here. I mean, something gets built, but it gets built out of wildness. And uh, I mean, I think it's something that's that uh, Borman kept returning to often. I mean, I guess he'd kind of return to it again with the Emerald Forest, which is, I think, the film he made after this, right? Mm-hmm, it is. Yeah. With uh, Charlie Borman, who's here, who is, uh, has a very, very, very brief appearance as uh the horrible baby what's his name mordred <laughs> yeah the horrible baby the horrible baby <laughs> that f- feature horrible, feature horrible guy. <laughs> oh i thought i would never hear laughter again and now uh, after that i wish i hadn't <laughs> yeah i wanted to talk about the borman of it all i i don't know that i feel like i've got a good grip on his work necessarily on him as a creator and reading more interviews with him i think even maybe less like i think he in that the interview that i quote in the the keynote he like just does a deep dive into not just arthurian writings but like a lot of of different poetry and art like he's very clearly like well read and a big symbolic thinker and i like watching zardas just does not give me that that feeling of like here's an extremely well-read man trying to bring off some extremely well thought through themes but like looking at at point blank and deliverance and and zardas in this movie like what i see over and over are the themes of how lust and anger destroy people the themes of how intellectual man may, may be stuffy and stodgy by comparison with people who act on their instincts and impulses but instincts and impulses also tend to destroy people and like finding the balance between acting on impulse enough to be a natural man because i think he's very concerned specifically with like masculinity the conflict there between acting naturally and losing control and destroying other people seems like a, a really strong uh theme that he wanted to explore like throughout his work yeah, I'm, I always find I always find to respond to, and there's some big Borman films I haven't seen that I need to catch up with at some point. But uh, particularly in this stretch, just the he's someone who just you know goes for it as a crafter of images and mood, and someone who's just not afraid to go a little bit over the top in a way that other directors might not. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, Deliverance is probably his most stri- restrained film from that stretch between Point Blank and this. Um, you know, th- it's followed by by Zardoz, which I adore while recognizing it is a very strange and not entirely successful film and exorcist two, which I'm also a fan of, but it's just, it's someone who with all those, he'll go big. I mean, he, I think he's someone who thinks that movies have the capacity to be, you know, operatic and scale. And, and he's making, uh, he's making films that kind of fit those dimensions. But there's a kind of, in a good way, I guess, but there's kind of a lack of rhythm to his films there, mm-hmm. there is a you know chaos does kind of rule mm-hmm. and uh, you know there's a and i think a, he likes a lot of sort of clashing i mean you know the, the, i think about like deliverance and i think like hell in the pacific right he did that one right mm-hmm. um and uh this one i mean you know it's it's about that clash between civilization and you know the wild or you know and, and uh men you know fight fighting each other and you know I, I, it's just it, it doesn't it, you know, I think he's comfortable with allowing that to happen in a way that is a little bit unruly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I mean, it's, it's so startling to me 
to watch a film like Excalibur, which was a Hollywood movie that was released and a, and a hit too, because to think about how impossible it would be to for a movie to open the way it does, or even just to behave the way it does at all now. I mean, because now everything is so ordered and every sequence and every shot is so storyboarded and, and fussed over and, you know, done by committee that just the idea of just like getting thrown into a story, getting thrown into chaos and having to kind of find your way, your way out. It feels like a foreign way of watching movies. I mean, good luck if you don't know anything about Arthur going into this film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yeah, and, just, just the basics. Yeah. And even if you do like just know the basics, I think like it's still kind of easy to get lost because like Arthurian legend is like so kind of squishy and uh, ancillary characters kind of like melt in and out of each other here and there. Mm -hmm. And because this film is presented as sort of like a soup to nuts, all the details uh, kind of presentation, I think there's a, it's, it's very easy to lose the thread a little bit of, uh, in terms of like what is quote-unquote real or authentic to the legend and what is specific to this story. I mean, that's kind of what Thomas Mallory was doing, too, because there's, sure. there's just countless Arthurian romances, uh, you know, in, in several different languages floating around and ripping each other off and borrowing from each other and, and improve, you know, improving and adding details to the point where it gets out of control. And, and Mallory was kind of attempt to, to synthesize that uh, in, into one story that made sense. And this is an attempt to do that. But, it, you know, it doesn't all fit. It really doesn't fit into a feature length film in many ways. Um yeah. But uh, yeah, and yet I, I like this film a lot. Well, speaking of that soup to nuts approach, it's a very episodic film. You know, there are a lot of different stories, kind of short stories all mushed together, uh, sometimes with a decade between them, sometimes with many decades between them. Uh, and at, at one point, we're just told, oh, by the way, uh, it's been 10 years since that thing in that previous scene happened. And we wouldn't necessarily know otherwise. There's certainly a sense of time passing, but not necessarily how much time passing. Which stories here, which segments stand out for you as, you know, particularly interesting or resonant or well done or poorly done? I mean, I'm kind of a sucker for the height of Camelot in large part just because it is like really cool looking. You know, you got this like gleaming silver castle and uh, like Guinevere's wedding veil. Like what? Did, I don't even know how you make that nowadays, <laughs> much less like 40 years real ago. I unclear when she was when she's dancing at the feast and Arthur's eyeing her up. She's got some kind of gold thing going on in her hair that I was a little mesmerized with because it's it's not sparkles. It's not quite tinsel. But it's some kind of sort of golden thread. Uh, it's it's a really neat effect. Yeah, and I, I felt the same way about that veil, Genevieve. It's also the scene where we kind of like get uh, Morgana as as played by by Helen Mirren. Which, uh, speaking of costumes, like hers, just get progressively more elaborate and an anachronistic to the point where I think at one point she's just like draped in gold sequins. And I don't think they had sequins in the Dark Ages. Uh, <laughs> if they did, probably they wouldn't have called it the Dark Ages. Am I right? <laughs> Uh, hey. uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I even though like the Morgana character in uh, this film is definitely villainized as she she very often, but not always is, and I'm I'm kind of a big fan of the approach to uh, Arthurian legend that uh, 
uh, embraces Morgana. But here she is like definitely an antagonist to Merlin, who sort of, you know, gets what's coming to her in the end. But sort of, you know, the scene in the round table where she's whispering in Gawain's ear, um, Liam Neeson. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I completely forgot he was in this. And I, I just I told my husband, like, I that guy in the background that we just barely saw looked weirdly like Liam Neeson. And he said nothing yeah. until, you know, we were looking at him full in the face. You're not the Gawainiac the rest of us are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think like I just, I, I responded to that portion of the film, not just because it's like really kind of fun and over the top and sparkly to look at, but because you do get, you know, Helen Mirren entering the chat and sort of uh, <laughs> giving uh, Nicole Williamson sort of a, a run for his money in the, in the ham department. I, I just kind of appreciated that uh, that balance happening, I guess, in the middle part of the film. A little bit of behind-the-scenes trivia. Apparently, both of them did not want to do the film mm-hmm. with each other because they had uh, a bad they had a bad uh, uh, incident with each other while staging uh, Macbeth. Although I don't know no was further it, details. Was it, was, it, was it Macbeth or Hamlet? I thought it was. Hamlet. It was this, well in, on the audio commentary. Borman calls it the Scottish play. Oh, okay, so all I, right. Well, yeah. then that's yeah. What that is? Okay, cool. But apparently, they they got along on 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 this one, right? That's good. Yeah, yeah. and apparently, yeah. Borman found out about it and wanted to cast them specifically because he thought mm. that energy between them that I don't want to be in the same room as you energy would actually be really good for the film. I was interested in you know, Percival's kind of arc is stands oh. out pretty well uh, for me just because the, you know it, it, it pays off so well in the end. And, and then I was really also sort of attached to Morgana just because I think that performance uh, Helen Mirren's is the really the only one that I liked a lot in the mm. film. Uh, I think it really it, it stands out and and has a real flavor to it that some of the other performances don't have. I, I think I think it's got this film is kind of, it's kind of a weak leads. <laughs> Thank my, you, Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross. <laughs> I kind of laid out my favorite. It is the Grail Quest stuff, which I, I find just just dreamy and and really mm-hmm. uh, entrancing. But but beyond that, I had forgotten. A detail I'd forgotten, which I which I actually really like, is the very ending when Percival is charged with uh, throwing Excalibur in the lake, and the 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 suddenness was which he, when oh, he returns, yeah. Arthur is gone, and it, it's just, and then that's the end of the movie. Uh, you know, Arthur floating off to, to Avalon with with three women who we don't know who they are, uh, you know, accompanying him, and and it's over at that point. And and you know, I think there's there's something being said there about. Things do end and are necessarily drawn out. It's just there's there's finality sometimes. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that given how much he wants to respect uh, Arthurian myth, we don't end with some kind of title card about you know are the the legend that Arthur will return from Avalon like rested and healed when Britain needs him most. Like that's so much part of the legend, and it seems to be a part that he's just not interested in. I think you know there isn't even a hint of it. Arthur will return in for your eyes only. (laughs) Yeah, Arthur (laughs) 2 on the rocks. (laughs) When did did the album Avalon come out? 82. I wonder wonder if it was influenced. Could have have just hit that one in stride. Yeah. (laughs) For me, the standout segment of the movie is actually the the, the part of it I I like best, I think, is when young Arthur is kind of trying to earn his spurs, the attack on the the castle. The Patrick Stewart's castle. I I know that Patrick Stewart, <laughs> once again, no matter when he turns up in what kind of uh, period piece, he's he's always bald and he always looks like he's in his forties or fifties. 
Uh, I'm convinced that somewhere out there, there are movies where he's uh, 15 years old and bald and in his 50s. <laughs> but I like watching him run around and uh, and do all of these wild stunts with no armor, no helm, uh, you know, no no protection, just with perfect confidence. And then in the end, win over an enemy knight by handing him Excalibur and saying, you, uh, you refuse to surrender to me because I'm not a knight, then you have to knight me. And he kneels. The fact that Borman just staged that so he'd be kneeling chest deep in murky water uh, with people standing all around him. I think it's fascinating. Like the the entire the knighting of King Arthur takes place in a dirty moat. And once he's knighted and the the knight like realizes that he's inspired by the nobility of Arthur's choice, by the confidence Arthur shows in him and his own nobility, uh, he kneels to him in the same murky water and then all these other knights kneel in the same murky water and you could just sort of hear them all thinking oh god why did you have to stage your your big show of nobility like chest deep in <laughs> filthy water we've just all been trampling around in with horses uh but like that that segment where he really shows who he is i, I love and i think it it's weirdly stronger for coming off of what i think is the worst segment in the movie when you first see him as a, a quote unquote adult running around with his big brother Kay and his hmm. entire shtick is just like, gosh, boy, I sure am a dumbhead. Like the the idiocy with which he pulls the sword out of the stone and then turns to Kay and is like, I got your store sword stolen, but here's Excalibur for you. Here's Excalibur. I like that line is hilarious. And then, you know, Merlin shows up and he's like, who is my father? And they go off to the woods and he's scared of small bugs and a tiny lizard and just everything that comes out of his mouth is exaggeratedly stupid and the acting there is so off every time i rewatch this movie i get to that segment i think oh wait is he just a terrible actor and the rest of the movie is going to be like this but i think he's trying to play up his naivete at that at that age i think he might be trying to play like he's 15 or something and i just don't think it plays at all and it's so leisurely and unfocused compared to so much of the rest of the movie going from that into like a pitch to battle scene where he defines himself uh, as a man, as a knight, as a king, uh, I think is really interesting. In young Arthur's defense, I did not like that millipede either. <laughs> that was <laughs> one of the more upsetting shots of, of, of the film, along with the, <laughs> the crow uh, eaten hamburger face. <laughs> oh, yeah. I liked all I liked all that stuff. All the, all the uh, <laughs> you, you liked the, the your beloved violence. Like, yeah, what, that was what? good. That was really that was creepy. That was, image, that was a genuinely creepy sequence. No, it, it, it was. And I like the I like even though I'm uh, it sounds like maybe none of us are on board for uh, Nicole Williams's take, take on Merlin. I wanted to wrap it. up okay. kind of talking about scenes and sequences before we dug into performances. But I mean, we can talk about performances now. Well, I think I, I, I just I just wanted to, to I was just using that as a segue to kind of highlight that I, I do enjoy Merlin's speech about the dragon there and it, it does kind of tie back into what we were talking about the sort of like elemental themes of the film and i and i think it's one of the uh moments that you know williamson's merlin works for me but I, it sounds like we're maybe going to argue <laughs> that he works for for other people at other points the first time i saw this film i thought that guy is in a different movie from everybody else hmm. and it really doesn't work 
this time watching rewatching the film, I was like, oh yeah, this guy is in a different world from everybody else, and it's incredibly appropriate. Yeah, he's not in this world. <laughs> yeah, I think he does a really, really interesting job of you. You were talking about how maybe Mirren's performance is the the only standout and the only memorable one, but I think Nicole Williamson's. Uh, performance is really really memorable because he pulls off so well that idea of like this is a man out of time like this is a man who conjures up mist and then sleeps for nine months afterwards this is a man who spends 20 years trapped in ice and then just kind of like walks out like oh hey i'm magical and in dreams now he he literally makes the connection that like uh, you know you and i are going away because this is an age of men like he's not a man and i think every part of that performance is trying to convey from the beginning like i'm a different order of being from you i'm not just a guy in a really close fitting metal hat with a stick i'm i'm literally a different order of being and i really think that there are a lot of things in this story that made me harken back to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, like the fact that when he's uh, angry at people, he lights up his staff with fire. You know, he has fire powers, like like the end where the characters sail off into the West and aren't really dead, but are completely gone. I'm like, oh, they they took this from Lord of the Rings. Oh, wait, no, Lord of the Rings would have been inspired <laughs> by the the original legend. That makes so much, so much sense. But in that sense, I think Merlin is here is like very much an analog to Gandalf, who is very much an analog to older versions of Merlin. Just that sense of literally something that is not human and just kind of looks human and, and people underestimate it and take it for human because it's around humans and they don't have an experience with not humans. I think that performance is reminding us at every moment, I'm a different order of being from you and I can't really live in your weird man's world. I think anytime he's given one of those Shakespearean monologues, he just makes a meal of it and it's, mm -hmm. it's delightful. I, I love his delivery. And yet he undercuts it with like this really kind of broad physical humor. You know, I, I like the performance a lot. I think I think it's a lot of fun. I think the it's those moments of broad physical humor that work least well for me. There, there, hmm. There's uh, one part where he like falls in the water that is just like, like has a very odd comedic rhythm to it. But I, I agree that, you know, he more often than not delivers with those sort of like big speechifying moments, but sort of the uh, the bug-eyed comic relief moments. I don't know, maybe I, I need a, a second watch to fully appreciate those. We should talk about uh, Liam Neeson's portrayal of Gawain as a man perpetually drunk and maybe kind of a lunkhead on top of that. <laughs> like he, he has a pretty big piece of action in the film where he which I just find thematically weird for this movie in general, where he accuses uh, Guinevere of something she certainly thought about doing. And as a result of that, she ends up doing it. You know, we we go to huge lengths to prove like on, on Gawain's body and the body of her champion that she's innocent of the charges she's been accused of. And then she immediately goes ahead and does the thing that she's been accused of and, and proved innocent of. I, I guess there's a big ongoing theme in there about how people's appetites are their downfall, but it just, I don't know, in terms of irony, it feels very heavy to me. But regardless, Liam Neeson in this movie, what up? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people here that we would see again later, you know, a lot of, a lot of would have been pretty 
new to film. You got baby Karen Hines, baby Patrick Stewart, baby Liam Neeson, baby Gabriel Byrne. Mm -hmm. Is there another baby in this one? I, I can't. Uh, did you say literal? Well, well how, how, she bit, but this is like 11 years into her career at this point. Uh, oh, really? She, okay. She, yeah, she'd been around. So, also baby Charlie Borman. So, that's true. Ba literally, <laughs> almost literally baby Charlie. Almost um, literally, yeah. Also, Igraine was played by Borman's daughter, Katrine. And yeah, so yeah. which means he directed her in that scene. He yeah. talks about the he talks about it in the audio commentary and he's like, people ask me about this all the time. We're both like, it, we were just playing a scene. She was really more scared of the fire than anything else going on. I, I don't get it. <laughs> but but that's, that was his attitude, apparently. You know, there are people that are less hung up on uh, nudity and, and sex than a lot of us and a lot of Americans in general. And uh, I don't know that I grok it exactly, but I could certainly see directing that as, you know, it's it's a naked body. What's the big deal? The French. Well, it's also sexual assault, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, which, it, to be fair, it, it was probably not being thought of that way in this context. No, he, he refers to it as a rape scene on the, on the audio commentary. Uh, okay, well, good, because that's yeah. what it is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of, the, one of the tiny performance details that kind of fascinates me about this movie is that she never plays that character as somebody who loves her husband or loves what comes after her husband. She, I think it, at every moment, is a woman who has been effectively sold as chattel and used as chattel and is aware of it. Like she's aware that she's beautiful, but she doesn't seem to be particularly vain about it because it got her into this situation and she feels resigned without ever having a big monologue explaining her position or her role. She feels resigned to her original husband and his appetites. She feels resigned to what, what happens when somebody comes to her in the form of the husband. The only thing she doesn't feel resigned to is her baby being taken away. Like she, she clearly is a mother who cares about her children first. But I thought that that was a remarkably aware bit of performance and directing for the time when women tended to be property in films, property and rewards, and very little thought tended to be uh, given to like how they felt about any of it or any kind of agency. And in this story, she still doesn't have any agency, but she clearly has thoughts. She clearly has a personality. And I think the bringing across of what she thinks and feels about everything that happens to her in this movie is just very clear in that performance in a way that just stands out to me as really unusual and, and pretty sensitively done. Also, uh, rape in movies tends to wreck people. It, it tends to be a hugely dramatic thing. And... I think she really brings across the idea of like she's living in an era where women uh, got raped mm -hmm. so so frequently. Like she was uh, the the idea that she was probably sold to her lord at like age thirteen and expected to start uh, churning out babies. I think again just kind of comes out in her performance. And, well, it's and also her rapist hands off her baby to a stranger. I mean, it's all very tragic and sad. Mm -hmm. But again, it just it strikes me not as enjoyable, but as as intelligent, as thoughtful, mm -hmm. as, as something that somebody put caring into in a way that male directors and especially male directors of the era did not put thought into a lot of the stuff that goes on in this film. 
Yeah, I think there's thought given to the role of women in this story without there necessarily being a whole lot of thought put into the women's roles. If that, <laughs> that distinction makes sense, like like they they are all kind of like operating on a thematic or, or symbolic level rather than like a character level, with the exception of these performance moments that you're you know highlighting. But that honestly could arguably be extended to most of the characters here. So I'm not going to ding it too much for that. We should move in the direction of wrapping up, but we we really just we got to talk about the opera. <laughs> we, we've got, how many times do we hear or Fortuna? At, at least three that I noticed. Never enough. No. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, most of the rest of the um, like the standout music in here is uh, is Wagner is from various uh, Wagnerian operas. What, what do y'all think about the use of music in this film? Like Keith, you kind of called it out earlier. I love it in that moment. I wonder if it might play better with an original score of Wagner-inspired score. Uh, Carmina Brown is Carl Orff. I, I know this. You, you can stop sending me emails now. But I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of Wagner all over it. Uh, I wonder if it would, be, would play better with a, with a Wagnerian-like um, score versus all, all this Wagner uh, music that has very specific references. Not that I'm enough of an op- opera sophisticate to tell you what they were, but, but it's not like Wagner didn't write operas around Arthurian themes. It is a little bit too, perhaps a little bit too much going, uh, not a far enough trip to get what you need musically. I'm curious to know, and I don't know if any of you can even speak to this, but just like how present Overturna in particular like was at this in the culture at this point, like in the popular culture at this point in time. Cause like now it's something you hear in commercials. It's something you hear in parodies, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not going to go so far to say it's a joke, but it can definitely be used as a joke. So I just like, just contextually, I'd be curious to know, and maybe one of our, our listeners could fill me in here, but like how original was this needle drop at the time? Cause if, if it's something that like hadn't really been done to death at that point, like, Okay, sure. Why not? Like I said at the beginning of this conversation, like it fits the tone that this uh, film is striking. But, you know, hearing it today, it's like, okay, you could have put a little more thought into this, but maybe he did put a lot of thought into it at the time and everyone just copied him. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it was quite the cliche then as it is now, but I, I don't necessarily have the facts to back that up. So maybe, maybe someone out there knows. Well, I think this is a good opportunity to just uh, throw to the listeners while we move on to other occasions that uh, we've thrown to the listeners. Um, (laughs) We'll be back shortly with feedback, and uh, we'll be back next week to talk a lot more about some of the the bigger themes, the bigger performances, and uh, the bigger connections here with uh, another movie. It's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. We'll kick off with the defense of Summer of Soul, which we generally loved while still bemoaning how much of the long-lost footage of the Harlem Cultural Festival director Questlove left on the cutting room floor in favor of interviewees discussing what their experience at the festival was like. Jesse in Shoreline, Washington says that was a bad call on our part. Genevieve, would you read this one? Sure. Jesse writes, I have to defend Questlove's decision to give us pared down chunks from the Harlem Cultural Festival performances overlaid with so-called talking heads. Questlove is a crate digger of the highest order who has scoured the earth for unique records and getting access to dozens of hours of largely unseen footage was like a hip hop producer finding the ultimate treasure trove of unsampled jazz records. 
he proceeded to do what he does best, finding the choice bits to cut together and build a set that moves with its own energy and crescendos at key points with longer, unbroken segments, such as the Jackson Staples duet and the Nina Simone performance. Perhaps documentarians working with archival footage really are just DJs working with visual media instead of records. Also, Questlove has a near-photographic memory for every bit of musical history he ever learned and an irrepressible urge to share it, even in the middle of his online DJ sets, adding depth and context to great music. That's what he does here with the present-day recollections from performers and the fans who were there. It feels doubly important for something like this festival, which is put together with more urgent goals in mind when compared to the commercial interests driving today's festivals and even the original Woodstock. I love seeing these performances and I'm eager to buy the uncut Criterion box set I hope we get someday, but I also wouldn't trade it for what Questlove gave us. I think that's all fair, uh, but also maybe they did Questlove write this. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I think that's all, all fair. And I, I think we do need a lot of the context that we're given um, and it's not overly broad context either it feels right i mean because i was thinking about like the woodstock 99 doc which i which i liked but but which has a lot of a lot of the talking heads sort of reaching pretty far for you know points of significance you know of the, the you know the define the era this feels like a little it feels like the references here are a little bit more grounded and i you know and it does give us it's i mean it's it's, it's almost an impossible balance to strike you can't do it just like woodstock you can't just have the performances and leave it at that you need to have that context but then you know how much is enough and uh you know and are we missing a lot of, does it throw the film off its rhythm i think it does kind of a little bit but but i think it's largely a very well put together movie yeah i i think all of us were maybe just a little caught in a a moment of excitement over the discovery and kind of wishing that we had more of something that we hadn't seen before and people like looking back on a historical event and and talking about it is something we see a lot of in documentaries but a nina simone performance we've never seen before is, is something that doesn't turn up very often so uh that may have been a, a reaction in the moment that n- won't necessarily hold for like long-term archival purposes certainly getting performers to talk about like exactly what was going through their minds during some of these like really iconic moments i think was a really good call on his part and uh the the access that he gets is interesting it's just that we also do want that criterion version with uh, like all of the footage that was shot like edited together for our for ratification yeah uh reading jesse's letter i actually thought back to our our last couple of episodes on on crumb and roadrunner and sort of the discussion we had about like documentary film versus journalism and sort of the uh you know storytelling in in documentary film and i'm kind of like thinking about that as it applies to like music films to, to concert films you know where there's not maybe necessarily a narrative or a, a story a natural narrative or story and in the case of summer of soul it feels almost more like a, a project of journalism you, you know of kind of giving us the the scope and context of this almost forgotten event and i think maybe what it sacrifices in in that is sort of just the the experiential feeling of it and and you know that that you are there feeling that i think the the best concert documentaries can do and that's not to say what like the project that summer of soul undertakes is 
bad or inferior to something more experiential and you are there. But I think just in terms of, you know, the maybe its goals, it is maybe a tad instructional feeling. And because of the archival footage, the material that we do see is so good and so compelling, it's kind of natural to want to go beyond that and experience it instead of just kind of being told and briefly shown it. And there's just, I think there could also just be a, a difference in terms of quality with regard to the people that we see, the people that are included in the movie. I mean, you know, it's, uh, um, uh, but, uh, you know, so, so some interviews are better better than others, I'll say. Is this the portion of the podcast where we drag Lynn manuel Miranda? <laughs> I, I think we actually, didn't we do that already? I think, I think we already did that. No, the, no, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we should just like make it a point to do it just a little bit in every podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he gets dragged. It's just it's now become just sport now. <laughs> Dragging him is just the thing that the internet does now. So uh, what are we going to pair with his new uh, animated Netflix movie where he plays a singing kinkajou, which we're just going to cover so we can drag him? It's but. it's just it's just like Camelot. Like he he had his moment of of glory, and then people look for weakness in the in the king, and and then the king's stumbling, and the kingdom's faltering. Or I know I don't know. I, I select Lin Manuel Miranda. I, I I get I get some of the impulse here, but uh, and he's maybe not the best contributor to that. That particular uh, documentary. I think it's just the ubiquity of, of Lin-Manuel Miranda that's, that's uh, driving people a little insane right now. This is actually feedback in the form of a comment on our Patreon that we found interesting and thought would spark a worthwhile discussion. In our weekly newsletter, Keith included thoughts on a recent New York Times op-ed from Kara Swisher, who more or less said that because she doesn't feel safe going back to the movies yet, no one should. Keith mentioned that he might just be amplifying a bad take, and one supporter agreed. Keith, would you read that comment? Uh, Jamie says, I was unaware of the article until this newsletter, so yep, you're amplifying it. I'd be quite happy if you didn't feel obligated to bring up idiotic arguments just because other people were talking about them, which is actually something I don't like about your show. You often mention whenever a film is getting negative blowback for whatever reason, often when your crew doesn't think it's valid, but you seem to feel obligated to talk about it. If you think your criticism is invalid, please don't bother bringing it up just because people on Twitter are making a fuss. That's what people on Twitter do. Most of the film-going population is not on Twitter and is not paying attention to these arguments. So I thought about this comment a lot and and I actually you know I think there's a really valid points here. I, I do feel like internet conversation does get amplified to the point where, where why are we why are we shooting over this bad take forever? You know, why is it someone with like 400 followers says something stupid and it gets passed around by, you know, people with 20,000, 40,000 followers? Um, it, it seemed like to create the worst possible situation. That said, I was responding to a uh, op-ed in the New York Times, uh, you know, uh, a bad op-ed, I thought, um, but mm-hmm. um, and certainly one that was definitely being amplified on Twitter, but uh, one that I think kind of spoke to our feelings, a lot of people's feelings about the moment is like, we're, we're worried about movie theaters. And worried, I think, about our relationship with movie theaters, which is an ongoing discussion, you know, we're having on this, especially as we try to decide whether or not we should not cover uh, theater only films again as, as the Delta variant uh, sweeps over us. But uh, so I felt a little bad, like, yeah, I was kind of doing what what I was being accused of doing. But but I also think, you know, I, I brought it up because it, it spoke to a larger issue as terms of like amplifying bad critiques of films on this show. How guilty are we? I, I'm, I'm going to throw that out to other no, people. I don't. I don't think we are. I mean, the one thing I will say about the internet is, and its effect perfect on, in every way. On well, it's just effect, and its effect on the way films are received is that I think that criticism, you know, certain lines of criticism become 
amplified to to a point where it's hard to get the put the entire film in perspective mm-hmm. i mean you've got the whole the amazon issue with nomadland the 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 colorism issue in in the heights uh, you've got the two the ethical quandaries happening in roadrunner and i think if you you know if you to avoid these discussions is a would be wrong <laughs> i think i think in every case you really do need to talk it out and and i think the the, the fun of this podcast is that is that we do have this the space and the inclination to put these issues in the uh, larger perspective and a lot the larger kind of like flow of 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 a movie so i mean i I think that i don't think any of our discussions of all of those films i mentioned were bogged down by the the types of things that tend to bog down twitter i guess when a, a movie comes comes out i think you can address a criticism and then you can kind of try to move on to other aspects of the film yeah i think in all three of those examples which by the way good good memory keith good good memory good memory keith you're the best critic that we've got on here i can't i can't believe that you came up with those brilliant ideas scott you're wrong about everything as usual <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think in all three of those cases, and uh, a good memory, Scott, that's, those are some really good polls. But I think in all three of those cases, uh, we I guess I can't speak for the Roadrunner one, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak for all of you. I feel like if we ignored them, we would feel that we were being blithe about some very real and pertinent questions, uh, just because we don't feel that Nomadland is essentially valueless propaganda for like it's it's minimal Amazon scenes or it's minimal Amazon take doesn't mean that we want to fall into the trap of saying this progressive, like thoughtful complaint about the value of of human work, the value of human labor is just worthless and dismissible. Like there's something contemptuous about completely ignoring a big topic like that. And like talking through kind of how we feel about it, I think, is is part of how we process and, you know, normalize and regulate our feelings on some what are sometimes some very like complicated and hairy issues. I think that, you know, for critics, a lot of discussion with other people can can often be sometimes validating and sometimes just a way to sharpen our own opinions and our own arguments. So like, I do think that there's value. I I agree that if we looked for the dumbest and most controversial take on Twitter or Facebook or Letterboxd or what have you, and discussed at length, like why this person with no, why this Twitter egg with eight followers is stupid, that would be a waste of everyone's time. But, you know, we're talking about where the film is in the zeitgeist and what the response is to it. And that's kind of our job. Yeah, because all films are more interesting in context. It's right oh, there in, in our tagline. And yeah, and, and, and yeah, and, and like we mean that tagline in the idea that like we're, we're talking about the films that have influenced a new film, but it's also about the context in which a film is released and the conversations that are being had about it. And often with our the older films we cover, we have limited access to those conversations because they happen in a in a pre-internet era and newspapers uh, get get archived haphazardly. But in terms of these new films, like we're experiencing those conversations, yes, on Twitter, but that's where we have our conversations about film these days, just by by virtue of kind of where we are. So I, I definitely think it is in play and in bounds to talk about the the controversy of a day regardless of our feelings on it because it's the it's the context in which the film is being received culturally 
that said, to circle back to the original point, Twitter discussions aren't necessarily the the broader world discussions, and it's 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 worth remembering that. Yeah, I, I'm re- I'm responding more to Jamie's criticism that this is something that we do on the show. Yeah. You know, I I understand the frustration with amplifying bad Twitter takes. I think that, and you were just kind of using it as a conversation starter, which is kind of how you you treat the the newsletter. But I kind of bristle at that criticism as applied to what we do on the podcast. Yeah. And I think also just in general, like good note about not bringing up bad takes specifically in order to drag them. I, I think it's valid if we have uh, thoughts and, and discussion. I, I think it's worth being aware of like when we're bringing these things up and, and how we're using them. Even if we even if we disagree, like, thank you for that note. That's uh, we'd like to hear more from Patreon listeners in particular, especially when we're asking questions over there. Um, and we appreciate the commentary. Yeah, I mean, and really, it, I think it's a much more convenient age. I mean, back when uh, Excalibur came out, we uh, all opinions had to be delivered via horse horseback. <laughs> took, took, a, took a much longer time for also, bad you never opinions to be uh, delivered and amplified. Somebody in gold armor would come up to you giggling and knock you off your horse and hang you from a tree. So, <laughs> you know, they, they there were fewer bad takes back then because the, the price for them was just so high. <laughs> well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and recommendations. If you feel so inclined and you're willing to brave the golden armored boy that won't stop giggling, we can feature your response <laughs> on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at a different Arthurian story that sidelines Arthur in the round table in favor of focusing on one would-be knight who doesn't come across well in Excalibur at all. It's David Lowry's The Green Knight, about a quest that Arthur's nephew Gawain undertakes after a supernatural creature challenges Arthur's court to a deadly game. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember that looking at a cake is like looking at the future. Until you've tasted it, what do you... (sighs) Look, will you stop eating when I'm trying to teach you a cryptic lesson? (laughs) 